Let us pray together. Father, we do give you thanks and praise. We thank you for sending your Son into the world, the eternal Word made flesh. Father, we thank you that your Son became one of us to bring us salvation, to deliver us from our sins, to rescue us from the curse of death, to usher in his kingdom, to reclaim the creation. Father, we thank you for all these things that you have accomplished through the work of your Son and now through the outpouring of your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we pray that today you would fill us with the peace and the joy and the love that was revealed so long ago in the birth of your Son. Father, would you fill us with this peace, joy, and love in this Christmas season and indeed in every season of our lives. This we pray, giving you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the Christmas season. Yes, it is still Christmas. I know much of the world has moved on, but the church has not. But uh, I want us to think for just a minute about how we celebrate Christmas. What happens at Christmas time? You know, the Christmas season, the way we celebrate Christmas, especially in America, has become a, a very sentimental time. A time full of sentimentality. You know, we picture families gathered around the table for a feast, like something out of a Norman Rockwell painting. Uh, we picture Christmas trees perfectly trimmed and, and, and lights softly glowing the way they might appear in a Thomas Kincaid painting. Uh, we hear songs about a silent night and a mother and a baby in a manger. You know, no crying he makes. We picture jolly St. Nicholas, uh, full of presents wrapped in colorful paper. Uh, We've got so many different aspects of the Christmas season now uh, that that you could really say are just sentimental. It's the time of year when sentimentalism hits its peak. But one thing that I don't think we typically associate with Christmas is warfare. We've so covered over the season with sentimentality, we don't think about the fact that Christmas is an act of warfare. It is a declaration of war. In fact, that's what you see here in Revelation. The first Christmas was actually a very brutal event. It was an act of war. It was an attack and a counterattack. And John shows us this here in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12 really is uh, the Christmas story according to Revelation. You know, typically if we want to read the Christmas story, where do we go? Uh, we typically go to the early chapters of Matthew and Luke. John's gospel, and Mark's gospel as well, but John's gospel does not have a nativity story the way Matthew and Luke do. But what John gives us instead is this account of Christmas in Revelation chapter 12. You can think of this as John's nativity story. Whereas Matthew and Luke give us Christmas from an earthly vantage point, here John tells us the Christmas story from a heavenly vantage point. This is Christmas through the eyes of heaven. What Christmas looked like uh, from a heavenly vantage point. Matthew and Luke give us an historical account of Christmas. John gives us a symbolic account of Christmas. In Matthew and Luke, you've got a woman and a baby. You have angels, stars, Herod and his soldiers with their swords. You've got uh, a flight to Egypt. In Revelation 12, you've got a woman and a baby, angels, stars, a dragon attacking a baby, a flight into the wilderness. 
All kinds of overlap, even though the story is told very differently. While there's a lot about this vision in Revelation chapter 12, I won't go into because it is a complicated vision. It's certainly a vision with many layers to it, a lot of complex details here that I'm just not going to be able to touch on. The basic gist of what happens here is not hard to decipher. Uh, in fact, I bet there are a lot of you kids here today, I bet there are a lot of you kids here today who could tell us what is happening in this vision. I bet there are a lot of you kids here today who could tell us what these symbols mean. The woman, the child, and the dragon. It's not that hard to figure out. Again, what is this? This is John's nativity story. This is John's version of the Christmas story. This is Christmas according to Revelation. Christmas told in symbols. So let's unpack these symbols for just a minute. I said they're they're pretty simple. They're pretty straightforward, and they are. Uh, But I think if we look at them a little more deeply, we can come away with some really interesting things. Start with the woman, because that's where the passage starts. Uh, We know the woman is a symbol because John says in verse 1, a great sign appeared in heaven, a great symbol appeared in heaven, a symbol in the form of a woman. And this woman is clothed with the sun, she has the moon under her feet, and she is crowned with stars. She has the stars in her hair. And she is pregnant. This woman is expecting. She is with child, and so she cries out in labor, and then we find she gives birth. Now, this woman is not in a manger, as in Matthew and Luke. She is in heaven, but obviously she must have some connection with Mary. Let's think about some of the details that John gives us here. Think about the sun, moon, and stars that adorn her. Where do we see these in Scripture? Well, obviously in Genesis chapter 1 in the creation account, we see God making the sun, moon, and stars, lights to rule over the day and to rule over the night. Of course, we also see them in Genesis chapter 37 in Joseph's dream, where he sees the sun, moon, and 11 stars bow down to him, which is then interpreted as his family members being subordinated to him. They will bow down to him. And of course, that vision, that dream is fulfilled, went through a uh, very wild set of circumstances, a, a very takes a very circuitous route to get there. But ultimately, Joseph does end up as a ruler. He ends up at, as Pharaoh's right-hand man, ruling over all things as, as, as a prince of Egypt, Pharaoh's right-hand man. Uh, he is the one who has the wisdom that it takes to save the world during a time of famine. And of course, when his family members come to him, they are subordinated to him. What you see here in Genesis 1, Genesis 37, elsewhere in Scripture, sun, moon, and stars are symbolic of rule and authority. These heavenly lights symbolize earthly rulers. Think of national flags. We've got this kind of symbolism uh, on uh, our flags. Uh, Think about our flag for the United States of America. We've got 50 stars. What do those 50 stars represent? 50 political powers, 50 states. Uh, Think about the flag of Japan that has the sun representing Japan's political power. Lots of nations have the crescent moon. Uh, on their flag. Nations like Algeria and Turkey use the moon as a symbol of their political power. So if this woman is clothed with sun, moon, and stars, what is she? She is a ruler. She is a princess. She is a queen. Indeed, because she is in heaven, we might say she is the queen of heaven. Remember I said this is a symbol. So what does the symbol stand for? 
Well, this symbol must stand for the people of Israel. The people of Old Covenant Israel, I think especially at the beginning of the passage, Israel was the bride of Yahweh. And Israel's whole purpose, the whole reason for Israel's existence was to bring the promised seed into the world. That's what God promised Abraham, a seed, a son. And of course, that seed that would come into the world through the nation of Israel, because salvation is of the Jews, that seed that God would bring into the world through the people of Israel, that would be the seed promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15, the promised seed of the woman who would come and crush the serpent's head. So who is this woman in Revelation chapter 12? Well, again, she's a symbol. We can say really she is a composite figure. She is many women. This one woman represents many women. Many women are represented in this one woman. Who is she? She is Eve, the mother of the living, who has promised the serpent conquering seed in Genesis 3. She is all the barren wives of the patriarchs in Genesis who gave birth miraculously to sons born not of the flesh, but of the spirit. This woman is Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, This woman is Ruth. She's Hannah. She's Manoah's wife. Israel's whole history was one of birth pangs. One of continually laboring. The nation crying out in labor pains. Longing for the birth of the promised one. The promised seed. The son God had promised to sin. All of those women in the old covenant are types and shadows giving birth to sons who prefigure the child, the Messiah. And so, of course, yes, we can say the woman here is also Mary, the virgin who gives birth to the divinely conceived son, the Lord Jesus, the one who is indeed the promised seed of the woman, the promised Messiah the conqueror, the redeemer, the deliverer. Of course, this means there's really no question who the child in the vision is. Verse 5, she bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And then we're told her child was caught up to heaven, to God and to his throne. Really interesting what John does here. He he moves from the birth of Jesus to the ascension of Jesus all in one verse. The whole ministry of Jesus is compressed into one verse. You see here, he was born to rule, born a king. As we sang this morning, Christ the babe is Lord of all. Even as a baby, he's Lord over all. He is the one who will fulfill Psalm 2. That's where this language of ruling the nations with a rod of iron comes from. That's Psalm 2. Psalm 2 promised a Davidic king who would reign over not just Israel, but over all the nations with his shepherd's rod. Jesus is the one in whom Psalm 2 comes to fulfillment. Now, this is interesting to think about how John has compressed all of this into just one verse. It seems that John's vision jumps from birth to exaltation, skipping right over the crucifixion. And we might wonder, how can John do that? Well, what we're going to see in just a few moments is that John does include reference to the crucifixion in this vision, but he does so in another way. We'll see that in just a minute. I think what John does here in Revelation 12 is actually very similar to what uh, he does in his gospel in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, Jesus, in his teaching there, Jesus fuses crucifixion, resurrection, exaltation and ascension all into one movement. 
They're all of, of one piece. Jesus says in John chapter 12, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Well, what is that lifting up? Is that lifting up the cross? Certainly he is lifted up when he's crucified. Is it the ascension? He's certainly lifted up from earth and into heaven when he ascends. Well, for John, it's all of the above. For John, the cross is the beginning of Christ's exaltation. It's all of a piece. Through the cross and the ascension, he draws all nations, he draws all peoples to himself. He comes to rule over them with the rod of iron, just as Psalm 2 prophesied. In fact, it's interesting, there are other connections in John 12, which is, of course, just before Jesus is crucified. A voice from heaven announces Jesus will be glorified. In Revelation 12, verse 10, there is a heavenly voice announcing the glorious kingdom of Jesus has arrived. In John 12, Jesus says the ruler of this world, Satan, is being cast down. In Revelation chapter 12, we see Satan, the accuser of the brethren, being cast out of heaven. All these connections, the same truths are being taught. And that really brings us to the third character in this Christmas story. We've seen the woman. We've seen the child. Now we need to look at the dragon. We meet the dragon in verse 3. This great fiery red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns. Now all of this language about the heads and the horns and the crowns This connects John's vision with Daniel's visions in the Old Testament. Many centuries before, Daniel had visions of beasts with multiple heads and horns and crowns. And of course, those beasts represented political powers. And so this tells us something about how the dragon will operate, how the dragon will exert much of his influence in the world. He'll exert much of his influence through corrupt political orders. Uh, He will deceive Uh, political rulers, he will twist the way that they rule, he will turn them into his own agents. When Satan seizes the power of the state, he can use it against the people of God, deceiving and blinding rulers, so they become his pawns. Daniel had talked about this happening. Uh, Here, John, in his vision, we see it happening as well. This is how the dragon will operate. It's not the only way he operates, uh, but it's one of the ways he exerts his influence in the world. So look at verse 4. As soon as the woman gives birth, that is, as soon as Israel brings the promised seed into the world, as soon as Jesus is born, the dragon stands ready to devour him. Idolatrous, wicked rulers have correctly seen Jesus as a threat and a rival from the very beginning, from the very moment of his birth. Even when Jesus was a baby, this was true. Think about Matthew chapter 2, how Herod tried to destroy Jesus just after his birth. Just like Pharaoh in ancient Egypt had sought to destroy the baby boys born to Jewish women uh, in ancient Egypt. You see that happening in the book of, of Exodus. So it is with Herod. Herod has become another Pharaoh. Israel has become like Egypt. And what is Herod seeking to do? He wants to destroy the promised seed. He is an agent of Satan. But the reality is, this is true all throughout the Old Covenant. Satan is continually attacking the seed. He's attacking the seed again and again and again, thinking if he can stamp out this line, he can keep the promised seed from coming into the world. But finally, with the birth of Jesus, 
We find he has failed to do that. So what does he do? Well, he can't get to Jesus anymore. Jesus is now ascended into heaven in this vision. So what does he do? Verse 6, he attacks the woman. He attacks the mother. That is to say, he attacks the people of God. Verse 13, the dragon persecutes the woman. Verse 17, the dragon was enraged and went to make war with the rest of the woman's offspring. That is, the brothers and sisters of Jesus, those who belong to Christ's family, who live by his word, who obey his commandments. Those are the brothers and sisters of Jesus. And what does John tell us that the woman does? Well, John tells us that the woman flees into the wilderness in verse 14. What is this flight into the wilderness? Well, in terms of historical events, we might think of the Holy Family, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus fleeing down to the wilderness of Egypt to escape Herod's murderous plot. I think you also see this in the book of Acts where persecutors pursue the disciples of Jesus. And so what do the disciples do? They scatter out from Jerusalem into the wilderness of the Gentile regions. They're driven uh, into, uh, into other places away from Jerusalem to escape the persecution. You cannot miss the Exodus connections here. Uh, All kinds of connections with the Exodus. This whole scene in Revelation 12, in fact, is a reenactment of the Exodus. Think about some of the parallels we've already seen here. There is an attack on the seed of the woman, Pharaoh attacking Jewish baby boys, Herod doing the same, the dragon doing the same here. Uh, Then the woman herself... um, when she's attacked by this uh, pharaoh-like dragon, she escapes into the wilderness. That's what the Israelites did in uh, the account of the Exodus. They passed through the Red Sea and found safety in their flight into the wilderness. In fact, what's interesting is in Exodus and Deuteronomy both, as they are describing the way the Exodus happened, how God brought his people to freedom and to safety in the wilderness, Both Exodus in chapter 19 and Deuteronomy in chapter 32 describe the Lord carrying Israel to freedom and to safety in the wilderness as if on the wings of an eagle. As if on the wings of an eagle. Uh, The eagle is symbolic, of course, of of God's own spirit uh, as are other winged creatures. Other birds are symbolic of the Holy Spirit. So it is with the eagle. And look what happens here in Revelation chapter 12. How does the woman flee to safety in the wilderness? She is carried to safety in the wilderness by sprouting eagle's wings herself. In verse 14, the woman grows wings, wings like an eagle. So she becomes like the spirit who delivers her, who strengthens her for battle. She's able to to flee to safety by means of flight. Just like in the Exodus, God carried his people on eagle's wings, so now the woman sprouts wings like an eagle and flies to safety. That's John's vision here. Well, verses 7, 13, and 17 give us, again, the heavenly perspective on all that's happening here. War breaks out in heaven. When Jesus is born, war in heaven breaks out. The serpent uh, has now gone into overdrive, attacking first the child, and when he can't capture the child, he attacks the saints. What's the picture that you get here? Christmas is not a silent night. No, Christmas is when all hell breaks loose. Christmas is when all heaven breaks loose. Jesus has come into the world, and this has changed history forever. John is describing the ultimate war of history. 
A war, yes, that had been going on with various skirmishes before the birth of Jesus into the world, but now has reached a a fever pitch with the birth of Jesus into the world. Now, here's the thing. You know, this passage describes spiritual warfare. And any time we read about this kind of warfare in Scripture, uh, American Christians are tempted to plug in everything that's going on in our culture wars and say, oh, yes, we, you know, we know exactly what these battles are. We're, we're, we're fighting those battles all around us right now. I think our culture wars, our so-called culture wars, are definitely related to the spiritual warfare that John describes here and that is described elsewhere in Scripture. But it would be a mistake to limit it to that, to reduce it to that. It would be a mistake to think that our culture wars map on to the kind of spiritual war that John describes here in some kind of exact way. And think, oh, well, the war that John is talking about today, well, that's just, that's, that's, that's the warfare between Democrats and Republicans, right? That's the warfare that we have between progressives and conservatives in our American context. No, to really understand the kind of warfare that John has in view here, we have to see it as much deeper, much broader, much older. The battle here is not just cultural, it is cosmic. It is not a war waged against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. It didn't start in the 1970s or 1980s, but long, long before that, almost 2,000 years before that. And the primary weapon in this warfare for God's people, the primary weapon God's people use is not some kind of political activism. Don't lose sight of this. The the weapons that God's people use here are spiritual weapons that God gives to his people in his word. We need to understand this. Again, I say Christmas is a time that's been overrun with sentimentalism, but we need to understand Christmas is really about warfare. Christmas is God's great declaration of war. Christmas is God dropping his son down into a fallen, hostile world that hates him. Christmas is about Jesus coming into the world behind enemy lines, infiltrating this world in order to conquer it and reclaim it. Christmas is not a sentimental thing. It's a declaration of war. It is about this warfare. It is the beginning of the great war for the cosmos. You know, sometimes we talk about the war on Christmas, and you'll hear Christians, especially this time of year, complain about how the cultural powers in government and in in, in business and retail, the cultural powers are, are seeking to secularize what this season means, and so Christians will complain about how Jesus has been replaced by Frosty the Snowman, or how... Merry Christmas and the Christmas holidays have been replaced by winter break, you know, whatever that is. Okay. I I do think it's important that we seek to keep the meaning of Christmas, the true meaning of Christmas in public during this time of year. I do think that's significant. Those symbols matter. But the real issue is not the so-called war on Christmas. It is the war of Christmas, the war that began with Christmas, with Christ's birth. At that first Christmas when God launched this all-out assault on Satan and on the powers of darkness. At Christmas, God planted the flag of his kingdom on human soil and reclaimed creation as his own kingdom, as the kingdom of his son. At Christmas, God is sending into the world the one who will rule the nations 
with that shepherd's rod. It is the coming of the king. Look how Satan is identified in verse 9. He's a great dragon. But what does this great dragon do? He doesn't breathe out fire like dragons in our mythology will do. No, he breathes out lies and he seeks to deceive the whole world. The weapon Satan uses in this warfare, what, what, what does Satan do? Satan lies, Satan deceives. He's also here called the serpent of old. He's the original deceiver. He's described here as the deceiver. So think about Genesis 3 where he tricks the woman. He deceives her. That's what Satan does. He is a liar and a deceiver. At the end of the chapter, you see his mouth pouring out false teaching. Described symbolically in terms of, in terms of poisoned water. He spews out this poisoned water seeking to drown the woman, drown the church in a flood of heresies and error. He's also called Satan here. That means the accuser. Verse 10 makes reference to that. Before Christ came, it seems that Satan had access to God's heavenly realm so he could go before God in heaven and make accusations against the saints. You see him doing that in the book of Job in the Old Testament and in the book of Zechariah, but no longer because Satan has been cast out of heaven since Christ's birth and Christ's ascension. Heaven wasn't big enough for the both of them, so when Christ went up, Satan was cast down. And so now, instead of an accuser in heaven, we have an intercessor. Instead of an accuser in heaven, we have a mediator. Satan's liturgy of accusation against us going on day and night in heaven has been replaced by Christ's continual intercession. The liturgy of Christ, Christ's liturgy of continual intercession, constantly going before the Father on our behalf in prayer. That's the good news of Christmas. That Satan no longer has his place in heaven. That Christ is now there on your behalf. Speaking for you. Praying for you. Interceding for you. Mediating for you. But that's not all. It's not just that Christ continues his warfare against Satan. He fights against Satan's work on earth from his heavenly throne. That's not all. We're actually conscripted into this battle ourselves. When you were baptized, you were enrolled into the Lord's army. You were drafted into the Lord's army. I don't care what age you were baptized at, if it was like James when you were just an infant, a a few weeks old, or as much later in life. Whenever you were baptized, you were drafted into Christ's army. You are now one of his soldiers. You're part of that army that shows up later in Revelation, in Revelation chapter 19, where Jesus is riding out to do battle on a white horse. And all of his saints, all of his disciples are riding out with him, going forth, conquering and to conquer. When you're baptized, you're enrolled in that army. And so we ourselves are called to fight as well. How do we fight? How are we called to fight this battle? In fact, the question is not just how do we fight, but how do we win? Because we're called to fight to win. We're called to win this battle. As God's people, victory is always our goal. We'll look at the song in verses 10 through 12. I think it really gives us a lot of insight into this. Verse 11. 
says they, that is the brethren, the disciples of Christ, overcame him, that is Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives to the death. How do we overcome? How do we become more than conquerors? How do we become victorious champions in this great cosmic spiritual battle that defines all of history? John tells us here, it's through the blood of the Lamb. We've seen a lot of Exodus connections here. Well, this is another one. This is obviously the Passover Lamb. The blood of the Passover Lamb that that, that has been slain. That is our salvation. That shedding of blood. And so this is John's way of working the cross into his Christmas vision here. This is where the Lamb of God sheds his blood. The Lamb of God has shed his blood for our salvation to give us the victory. This is how we overcome, by the blood of the Lamb. Think about blood. Blood in Scripture. The blood of Abel cried out for vengeance against his murderer. The blood of Christ now cries out for God's vengeance against those who persecute the saints. And that vengeance will come. But the blood of Christ also cries out for forgiveness. For forgiveness to be granted to those who trust in Him. Christ's blood was shed to cleanse us, to wash away our scarlet stain of sin and to make us whiter than snow. Our whole salvation is found in the blood of Christ. The Christian gospel is a bloody gospel. We are covered in the blood of Christ, and that is our hope. Romans 5.9 says, we have been justified, that is, we have been declared righteous by his blood. Ephesians 1.7 says, we have redemption through his blood, that is, we've been set free from slavery. We've been redeemed out of slavery through the blood of Christ. Colossians 1.20 says we have peace by His blood. That's peace with God. Peace with one another in the church. Hebrews 9.14 says His blood cleanses our consciences. His blood purifies us. So we can have assurance of this salvation. Assurance of forgiveness in His blood. 1 Peter 1.19 says we have been purchased with the precious blood of Christ. Which is of far greater value than any silver or gold. 1 John 1, 7 says we have been cleansed from all sin by the blood of Jesus. Revelation 5, 9 says he has ransomed his people by his blood from every tribe, nation, language, and people. He's ransomed an international church by his blood, forming us into, Revelation 5 says, a kingdom of priests who now reign with him. That's what the shedding of his blood at the cross is all about. Everything we could ever need for life and salvation and godliness and hope is found in the blood of Christ. A single drop of Christ's blood is worth more than all the world put together. Our salvation is found in His blood. And that is our testimony. We conquer by that word of testimony as we confess and proclaim and sing this glorious truth that our whole salvation is found in the Lamb that has been slain, this Passover Lamb, the Lamb of God who came to shed His blood to cleanse us from all our sins. Satan breathes out lies. 
We breathe out this word of truth. This is our testimony. Indeed, John says here, we are so committed to this truth, we are willing to die for it. John here makes reference to the martyrs. They did not love their lives even to death. What is John saying? Because Jesus has shed his blood for us, we are willing to shed our blood for him. We know death is not the worst thing that could happen to us. One of Satan's lies is to tell you the most important thing for you to do is to preserve your own life at any cost. And not just preserve your own life, but preserve your own comfort, your own well-being. But those who know the value of Christ's blood can say, no, what is most important is knowing Jesus, obeying Jesus, serving Jesus, trusting Jesus, loving Jesus. That's what life is about. And even if my life is taken from me for the sake of Jesus, it will be worth it. He suffered for us, so we are willing to suffer for his sake. And when this is our view of life, our our posture towards life, when we look at life this way, what happens? The church becomes an unstoppable force for good in the world. Not even death can stop the church. Because just as there is power in the blood of Christ, so there is power in the blood of the martyrs. There is power in, in our suffering because our suffering is a fellowship in His suffering. We cannot be afraid of suffering. We cannot shrink back from whatever suffering Jesus calls us to. Understand, suffering for Christ does not mean the church has been defeated. No, that kind of suffering is always a prelude to victory. It is a means to victory. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. seems the more the church suffers, the more the church grows. And so look at at verse 12. What comes next in this hymn? Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Rejoice, O heavens. Have you ever contemplated what God has done? These great events. You can't just, you can't get this kind of joy just contemplating an idea or a principle, some kind of abstraction. This kind of joy only comes from something that has been accomplished in history. Have you ever been so overwhelmed contemplating what God has done for you in Christ that you're simply overwhelmed with joy? Joy unspeakable, this joy that came into the world with Christ's birth. Verse 12, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. When Christ was born, there was joy in heaven. Heaven itself couldn't contain the joy, so it broke open with those angels singing joyfully. To the shepherds, there was joy in heaven when Christ was born. Heaven opened in the sky above the shepherds and the angels sang for joy. But as citizens of heaven in Christ Jesus, this heavenly joy is ours as well. And indeed, this joy is also one of our weapons in this warfare. We are called, yes, to be warriors, but we are called to be happy warriors, joyful warriors, Joy is a weapon. We can be joyful even as we are at war. Indeed, this joy is how we fight. We should have a joy on earth that mirrors the joy of heaven. 
War breaks out in heaven, but joy breaks out as well. And we share. Just as we share in that warfare, so we share in the joy. What is Revelation 12? It's a Christmas story. It's a Christmas story. So think about this for just a minute. Joy at Christmas time is a weapon in our arsenal. What do we do at Christmas time? We feast and we sing and we give gifts. And why do we do all of these things? We do these things because the great battle has been fought and our champion has won. The seed has come and he has slain the dragon. Jesus was born into the world to crush the serpent's head and to silence Satan's accusations. And he has prevailed. And that's why we celebrate his birth. This is why there's joy in heaven. This is why there's joy in our hearts. But you know what? Every Christmas, every year this happens. Every year at Christmas, there are some killjoys out there who try to make us feel guilty for celebrating Christmas extravagantly. Satan wanted to stop the joy of that first Christmas and he's been trying to stop it at every Christmas since. And in fact, one of Satan's great strategies in this is to make you feel guilty about celebrating Christmas, to make you feel guilty about spending money on gifts or going to parties and feasting. And Satan will accuse you of commercializing Christmas. Uh, Satan will accuse you of, of celebrating too much, of being too extravagant in your celebration. But you need to know that guilt... That kind of guilt comes from Satan, not from God. It's not wasteful to celebrate what God has done. And of course, this joy in the nature of the case is something that is shared. It's, it's a social joy. It's a, it's a communal joy. It's a, it's a, it's a familial joy. You know, think, think again about Christmas time. We've just been through this season. At Christmas time, do you see people buying bags full of gifts just for themselves? Do you see people full of, with, with grocery carts full of food just for themselves, just to eat all by themselves? Now, one of the most glorious things about Christmas is so much of what we do, we do for others. It's to share. You're buying gifts for others. You're buying those groceries to share with others. There's no need to feel guilty for any of that. And those who try to make us feel guilty for celebrating have got a satanic agenda. God does not give us good gifts just to make us feel guilty. Actually, what's happening is Satan is miserable and the world is miserable and the world's miserable because the world is guilty and the, and the world wants to drag you down into its misery and guilt as well. We've got to say no to that and rejoice in what God has done in this season and in every season. Now, obviously, if you have to take out a second mortgage to pay for Christmas, that, you know, that may be a different issue, okay? But, again and again, Scripture shows us that God's people are to be marked by joy and festivity and feasting. Why? Because we have so much to celebrate. Our hearts should not be able to contain the joy any more than heaven could contain the joy. Think of Deuteronomy 14 where God in his law commands the people to eat and drink whatever their hearts desire when they gather for the feast in Jerusalem. You just can't have too much joy. You can't have too much fun when you're celebrating what God has done. Nehemiah, when they were rebuilding the temple and the city, Nehemiah commanded the people to eat the fat, to drink the sweet, 
to share with any in need, to multiply their joy by, by sharing these things with others. And he says, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. There is strength in this kind of joy. And again, this is a joy that maybe most especially characterizes Christmas time. Maybe we could say Easter as well. But this is a joy that should characterize the whole of our lives. We are a people who ought to be full of joy year round. Indeed, we should be joyful even in the midst of hardship. Again, this joy is a weapon. It's a weapon of our warfare. When God's people are persecuted in Scripture, again and again, what do we see them doing? How do they respond to the persecution? They respond with joy. When God's people are persecuted, how do we fight back? We fight back with joy. Jesus said this, Blessed are you when they persecute you. Rejoice and be glad when they persecute you. For great is your reward in heaven. Throw us in prison and we'll sing psalms with hearts full of joy. Burn us at the stake and we'll keep joyfully confessing the truth of the gospel until the flames engulf us. Throw us to the wild animals. That's not going to stop us from joyfully confessing and proclaiming this truth. We count it all joy. It is a joyful thing to share in the sufferings of Christ. And so what must we do with just what John describes here? We must hold fast to the testimony of Jesus and keep his commandments, knowing as we do so, he will give us this joy and grant us the victory. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.